The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us offer our praise to God in liturgy, homily, and music as a gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue as a New England radio audience through WBUR 90.9 FM and as an internet listenership around the globe live at WBUR.org. As we are able, let us stand in the praise of God.
Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. We are invited to enter into a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. We remember the words of Marilyn Robinson writing recently in her novel, Home. There is a saying that to understand is to forgive, but that is an error. You must forgive in order to understand. Until you forgive, you defend yourself against the possibility of understanding. But if you forgive, you may indeed still not understand, but you'll be ready to understand. And that is the posture of grace. Let us pray.
we remember the admonition of the Apostle, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. If we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in verses from Psalm 139 with the Antiphon. Search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Friends, please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the Gospel, and the hymn. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. today can best be heard from the last sentence wherein the clearly clairvoyant Johannine Jesus belittles Nathaniel's marvel at him by acclaiming divine freedom, acclaiming historic change, acclaiming a horizon of hope. Divine freedom, you will see the heavens open 
change in history, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending, a horizon of hope. You will see the Son of Man. First, freedom. God is loving us into love and freeing us into freedom. The nature and dimensions of freedom are very much on our minds this week, this morning. Others from other spaces will want to continue to explore more fully the political and social and economic features of this freedom. We have, though, first, another job to do. It is the job of preaching. It is our task to name freedom. In that sense, it is a theological job, though preaching is more than theological reflection alone. Here is our confession. Jesus means freedom. The other morning I took my daughter and grandchildren to the aquarium. With you I celebrate this cultural gift and make common cause with their fine work in opening the world to wonder. Surely there are many fine places to spend an hour or two in our fair city. But is there a single one that will pierce your soul and your spirit with a sense of the creative power and the natural wonder and the physical freedom of the world in which we live? I challenge you to stand in front of the Pacific Rim tank with fish of a hundred colors and shapes and not be overtaken in wonder by the power of freedom set loose in the universe. It is our conviction that the God who makes allowance for being, who calls us and calls all into being, is the God of freedom. Freedom on Sinai, freedom on the Mount of Olives, freedom on the way to Emmaus, freedom itself set free. Freedom evolves. Does your God, your apperception of God, make space for evolution? Truly, truly, I tell you, your patent or latent view of God makes every sort of difference in your life, said William Sloan Coffin before he died. If, as the scripture says, God is love, then human freedom is real. Freedom is the absolutely necessary precondition of love. Our incoming president made a fine speech last year about race. He did so to clarify his own thinking and our thinking about his thinking with regard to race. This was widely known and acclaimed but to do so, he had to clarify his own thinking and our thinking about thinking with regard to a form of religious thinking. To date, to my knowledge, no one has fully appreciated the theological depths and dimensions of his March 18, 2008 address. So this weekend, as we come to our inaugural Perhaps we could pause to appreciate his theological insight. 
all the more choice since it is offered by a lay person. Obama that day said no to Jeremiah Wright in terms like these. Unlike others, unlike another generation, we do not believe that our fate and our future are irrevocably chained to our tragic past. He offered his view that change can happen, real change, which is real hard, over time, in real time, can really happen. He explicitly rejected a harsh providential divine determinism or damnation for a country that certainly has known its share of sin. He stepped aside from the litany of sin and atonement and stepped toward the liturgy of confession and pardon. That is a layman's theological statement about divine and human freedom. Life is not purpose-driven for ill or good. Life is not divinely ordered and directed in the small or in the large. Life is not found in the rigid orthodoxies, neither of fundamentalism nor of radicalism, neither in the biblicist fundamentalism of a Rick Warren, nor in the liberationist radicalism of a Jeremiah Wright, produced by his teacher and mine, James Cone. I have yet to see a single serious writer, preacher, or journalist identify the ironic similarity, the congruent similarity, the family resemblance of Warren and Wright. One is from the far right and one is from the far left, but nonetheless they offer the same, the very same, religious perspective. In what I say, I do not criticize. They're good people doing good work. I profoundly disagree with them and adamantly oppose them, but I acknowledge their desire to know and to do the right and the true and the good. And I too fell in love early on with Karl Barth, so I know from the inside the powerful pull of that perspective. Yet here is irony. While they differ completely in politics, Warren and Wright offer the same religious perspective. The Bible is the sole word of God, either in personal purpose, Warren, or in cultural judgment, Wright. God is known in providence, whether from the law, Warren, or the prophets, Wright. It is God, not we ourselves, who makes all change, whether from the right, Warren, or from the left, right? The human being is left to submit, Warren, or rebel, right? But finally is doubly predestined, as Augustine finally had to admit before Pelagius. History is tragedy for Warren and aft, right? Freedom is an illusion, Warren, or a presumption, right? You will note that this is not a very cheery world view. Both Wright and Warren are indebted theologically to Karl Barth and Reinhold Niebuhr and the neo-orthodoxy against which Howard Thurman and others have unsuccessfully but truly preached 
for 50 years. From this pulpit, Howard Thurman, 50 years ago, was 100 years ahead of his time. He's still 50 years ahead of you and me. Warren is Bart from the front. Wright is Bart from the back. But from the front or the back, it's still Bart. They both have taken seriously the first of Niebuhr's grave points about the tragic sense of life, and they both have neglected utterly Niebuhr's second, his late-in-life concluding sermon, that there is in the human being a divine spark of freedom, a capacity for a spiritual discipline against resentment. And so an open future, the future is open. A divine human heteronomy. Both radically and fundamentally minimize the capacity of the human being to change and the potential for human society to improve. They both radically and fundamentally mute freedom, whether for a new post-biblical freedom for gays to find their place in society or for a new post-radical shared leadership of many hues in the, in the cause of racial justice. They both, and quite successfully to date, define American Christianity over against the liberal tradition. And so far, they have won the day. But the day is young. What astounds me still is that the theological insight of Obama's race speech has had no attention. Against a purposey providentialism, Warren, and against a denunci denunciatory determinism, Wright, Obama affirmed freedom, March 18, 2008, said he, I have asserted a firm conviction, a conviction rooted in my faith in God and my faith in the American people, that working together we can move beyond some of our old racial wounds and that in fact we have no choice if we are to continue on the path of a more perfect union. Embarking on a program of self-help also requires a belief that society can change. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress has been made, as if this country is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. But what we know, what we have seen, is that America can change. That is the true genius of this nation. The problem with radicalism and the problem with fundamentalism is the same problem. They see the future only from the past. The sun also rises and the sun also sets. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. They see what they expect to see. And so they chain us 
with all due sense of purpose from right or left to what has been. And so they chain us with all due citation from right or left of the Bible to what has been. Here is the key line. The profound mistake is that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. Sursum corda. Hear the gospel in thrilling mystery this morning. The gospel denies that we are irrevocably bound to a tragic past. And in the same way, this week's inaugural denies that we are irrevocably bound to a tragic past. Freedom. Second, change. John's gospel exudes freedom. John's gospel speaks of change. With freedom, scary thought, things can change either for the better or for the worse. At a wedding this weekend, guests from New York chose to spend Saturday at the Kennedy Museum, and I said a silent thanks that they had chosen that spot this weekend. It is a place that exudes the spirit of this sentence of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, I believe America should set sail and not lie still in the harbor. You remember, I expect, a time when the utter misery of others at last permeated your spirit and you seethed with an, hungry, an angry hunger for change. Maybe you drove by the South Bronx, safe on the highway, riding in a new, in a new car, and looked down on the city and saw Public School 131 with six-year-olds coming out and you thought, how do we do this? How do we let this happen? Or you had to stop at the emergency room in a small town hospital, a toothache, a broken limb, and you looked around and for the first time, the hidden poor of the land were real. Or you served in a dining center and learned something, or you heard Marion Wright Edelman, really heard her, when she said that 20% of our children are raised in poverty. Or you saw something of all places on television and it just made you weep. Or you read an article about children hurt, wounded, killed in the fog of war as they took shelter in a schoolhouse. Or you crossed the border into Tijuana and all those little faces and hands reaching for coins sent a chill through you on a sunny hot day. And you felt it in the marrow bone. God loves especially those left out and things can change. With the divine gift of freedom, there comes the chance for change. In two fine recent novels, Gilead and Home, over the past several years, Marilyn Robinson has given you a sympathetic reading of determinism. Fundamental or radical, it doesn't matter. Which ultimately, though closely and cautiously, she rejects. Here is the climax of Home, her second book, that places the apparently damned Jack in earshot of a young woman who has suddenly married an old preacher. Just stay for a minute, she said, and Jack sat, sat back in his chair and watched her as they all did, 
because she seemed to be mustering herself. Then she looked up at him and said, A person can change. Everything can change. And Jack said very gently, Why, thank you, Mrs. Ames. That's all I wanted to know. Third, hope. Given the darkness, confusion, and corruption of our time, it is more than tempting to turn a cynical eye and ear upon the earth. But the thrilling mystery of our gospel today argues, acclaims, shouts otherwise. The community that composed the Gospel of John knew a rare kind of freedom. Theirs was not only a freedom of religion, it, it also was a freedom from religion. So in this mysterious verse, the writer acclaims openness even to the heavens, pronounces motion even among and between angels and men, pulls forth what strangely for him is the highest title of Jesus, the Son of Man. An open heaven is a symbol of divine freedom given as human freedom. The Jacob's ladder of ascent and descent is a symbol of power to move and to change. The heightened title, Jesus, a divine figure, is a symbol of hope that will not let you go. On Christmas Day, we stood outside Trinity Church after a fine morning service. Hope was in the air. What the aquarium is to freedom, and what the Kennedy Museum is to change, the churches of our community are to hope. They are living, speaking symbols of hope. When you are tempted to lose hope that there might be liberty and justice for all, I hope you will think of the family just now about to set up housekeeping at the White House. When you are tempted to lose hope that our education or medical provisions can be fair or just, I hope you will remember that one teacher who touched you, that one doctor who helped you. When you are tempted to lose hope that peace might ever come between Arab and Israeli, Muslim and Jew, I hope you will remember that other peace, hard wrought, has come in other places. I give you Ireland. I give you South Africa. When you are tempted to lose hope that a durable economy might evolve, wherein those who have much do not have too much, and those who have little do not have too little, I hope you will remember the Hudson River voice of a crippled president who said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When you are tempted to lose hope that the voice and place of women worldwide, worldwide, might ever be sustained, I hope you will remember Susan B. Anthony saying, failure is impossible. When you are tempted to lose hope that the world can work, I hope you will remember Jesus' thrilling mystery. Truly, truly, I tell you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. For just as freedom leads to change and change leads to hope, so also hope brings change and change brings freedom.
We enter a time in which there is the possibility now of a new birth of freedom. It was not a pretty June morning on which Abraham Lincoln spoke the words of this morning's sermon title. It was not on a beach in Hawaii or Florida that he spoke. It was not in the peaceful backwaters of a decade of progress or plenty. It was not after a long and easy life with grandchildren gathered. It was not out of the quiet, safe reflection in a monk's cell. Lincoln spoke over the graves of thousands. He spoke in the roaring November wind. He spoke on the corn stubble of a Pennsylvania field. He spoke as a leader who thought he just might be losing. He spoke as a man more acquainted with sorrow and defeat than perhaps any other person of his time or any time. He was our greatest leader. And he was a pretty fair lay theologian himself. And in a couple of years, he would himself be dead. We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. As we prepare our hearts for prayer, I invite you to stand, to sit, or come forward to kneel at the altar. Now let us sing together the call to prayer, Lead me, Lord. Thank you, life-giving God, for the blessing of nature's abundance, 
its stunning mystery and awesome beauty. We ask for wisdom in steward stewarding the Earth's resources and protecting it for our children and for all life that finds a home here. Thank you, God. You created us in freedom, and you continually call us to freedom. Help us to embrace this freedom, to love deeply, and to live in it fully. Thank you, loving God, for people close to us who support and love us, those who know our story. Thank you for the blessing of their presence in our lives, and we ask for your love to overflow in us that we may serve and honor them as Christ. Merciful God, we ask that your love that does not let go permeate every situation of conflict in the homes of our hearts and for distant communities struggling toward peace. Forgiving God, unify people and all of creation together in wholeness, guide those in leadership throughout the world in peacemaking, and give us the gift of reconciling love in our daily lives. Healing God, we ask for your presence through each of us to be with those who need healing, who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Comfort those who are hungry, lonely, or without a place to call home, who are fearful of tomorrow, looking for work, or hoping for just enough to live. Give courage and hope and a taste of your abundance in their troubles. God of all comfort, sit with those who wait in loving vigil. Embrace those who have died and those who grieve for them. May we share the comfort that we have received from you with those in sorrow. Now gathering all these prayers together, these petitions spoken aloud, and all the prayers that we hold in our hearts, we pray as Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you here to Marsh Chapel this morning and welcome back all of the students who began classes this past Wednesday. We would invite you to fill out the Ritual of Friendship, otherwise known as the Red Book, at the end of each pew to let us know that you're here and help us to be in contact with you throughout the week. We'd invite you to join with us this week in our first week activities and would point out especially the Martin Luther King Jr. Day events tomorrow afternoon in Metcalf Hall. The Marsh Chapel Choir will offer the third of its Bach Cantata series on Sunday, January 25th in the, in the, in the 11 o'clock worship service, uh, Cantata 111. We hope you will join us for that. We would encourage those of you listening on the radio or the internet to visit our website, bu.edu chapel, and as you feel so moved, to click the link March Stewardship and participate in our life together through giving and, and sharing our tithes and offerings. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
This offering is just a fraction of all that we have to be thankful for. As we give these monetary gifts to you, allow us to reflect on the many ways you provide for us and remind us of those who are not as fortunate as us. We thank you, God, for your unending love. Amen. go in peace, go in grace, go in love. Amen. <laughs>